there are reasons that the government of Syria and the government of Iraq want to be connected to each other. They're neighboring countries. They were each other's biggest trading partner before the war. It's bizarre to imagine that you can, without much effort, sort of separate these contiguous countries. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Sima Hadar, Michael Wahid Hanna, Sam Heller, and Aaron Lund to talk about Hezbollah and Iran's road through Syria. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Hi, uh, I'm Sam Heller here. I'm Sima Ghaddar. And I'm Aaron Lund. And I'm Michael Hanna. Thank you all for, uh, for joining me for this conversation. First thing I wanted to ask you guys about is something that I've been hearing about a lot and reading about a lot, and which, frankly, I think is a little overblown, but you might not all agree with me. There's been a big, uh, a big deal made about how Iran and its allies have now won a path all the way to the sea. Iran now controls all the main strategic land from Tehran to the Mediterranean uh, in Lebanon and Syria, and that the final uh, achievement was its uh, victories in the eastern de- deserts of Syria recently. And th- through this, they have solidified control of a land bridge, which connects all these uh, pro-Iran, Shia-dominated territories uh, together. And before I get into what my concerns with this narrative are, I want to throw it out there and, and ask you all, what do you make of this heated, heated narrative that's been, by the way, peddled quite aggressively by a lot of Sunni governments uh, in the Middle East and certainly by some quarters uh, in Europe and the United States? I mean, I think that it's, it's overblown. I feel like it's, it's kind of portrayed in these extreme apocalyptic terms that I think are unearned. Um, I also think that every new kind of expansion of Iranian influence is portrayed as a new existential threat to Israel and to the various Gulf states, to America's Sunni allies. Um, and we, I think we do need to take into account that these two countries are by now pretty definitively an Iranian sphere of influence. Which two countries? Iraq and Syria. You know, I mean, like this is this is a you know, these are two countries where I mean they have a they have a real foothold, even if they're not the entirety of these two countries. They don't dominate everything, but they, uh, you know, these are these are countries where they have important strategic interests that they won't surrender. At the same time, I do think though that the the land bridge stuff, I'm reluctant to uh, to totally dismiss it. You know, again, so I don't buy into some of the framing around it. I buy into, I buy that it is legitimately problematic that it's going to make life harder for America and its allies in the region because what it's going to do, I think that you don't have to be crazy uh, to think that it does make Iran's life easier to have this extended, uh, this land route all the way uh, reaching to Lebanon, that it has what seems, you know, a a freer hand to operate now uh, in Iraq and Syria, which is qualitatively different from what it was before. Uh, and then now, if they you know if they want to run weapons to Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, they can move them over the entirety, basically, of Syria. Okay, so that's where I call horse horse uh, doo doo on that on that argument. Because okay, first of all, we have these governments in Iraq and Syria that have been pro Iran the whole time anyway, and we have this other government in the region, the Israeli one, which is very anti uh, Iran and Hezbollah, which will bomb any major weapons shipment that it can find out about that's being trucked around towards Hezbollah. So if you're Iran, you fly weapons right now from Tehran 
to Damascus and then you drive them that last hour in Lebanon and some high percentage of those shipments still get interdicted and blown up by the Israelis. I so, think it's it's a lot harder to keep track of that if you're, you know, if you're just watching that one highway route, highway route from Damascus to Beirut or you know Damascus into Lebanon than if you are have, if you are watching the entire road network of Syria in which whatever shipments they are are kind of disguised as or commingled with commercial shipping, you know, potentially with uh, uh, with kind of Syrian government forces with Russian forces maybe as a sort of cover and a deterrent. I mean, I think this is, it seems like it is a, it's a, it's a bigger challenge. It's not the end of the world necessarily, but I don't, I also don't think it's nuts. Well, I mean, but for me, I probably need to do a little bit more digging on this, but the logistical aspects of this don't make too much sense. I mean, number one, as the Nasi mentions, the idea that like, Iran is gaining some new foothold. Syria has been in the Iranian sphere of influence now for decades, right? There hasn't been a big strategic shift. It is true that now there are Iranian forces on the ground and Iranian-backed militias there. But Syria has been, since the 80s, in Iran's camp. Uh, And they have this perfectly suitable method of delivering weapons to uh, Hezbollah. So I'm not sure that I don't see how that balance shifts dramatically here. And it fits too neatly into a narrative of the Shiite crescent and portrayals of this as the Iranian hegemon on the march that make me uncomfortable because I don't think that um, is an accurate portrayal of Iran's regional power. Yeah, I mean, I I also think this is overblown. I think Sam is correct that there is a, I mean, this was a land route will facilitate things for Iran, but but it's not just about Iran. I mean, there are reasons that, the government of Syria and the government of Iraq want to be connected to each other. They're neighboring countries. They were each other's biggest, I mean, there was Syria's at least biggest trading partner before the war. I mean, the, the Lebanon trades with, with Iraq and with uh, Iran and, and onwards through Syria before. It's, uh, it's bizarre to imagine that you can, without much effort, sort of separate these contiguous countries. As a point of order, just, I, I mean, we're talking about this as if it's something that already happened and has not happened. I mean, there's not, I mean, there is a road, sort of, if you, if you go through the PKK-controlled territories under, uh, in, three, in Iraq and, and, uh, and Syria, yes, you can connect. But then you've, the, you have uh, pro-Assad forces that went to the Iraqi-Syrian border, but that's in the middle of the desert. They even sent government press people there, and they wrote in the pro-government press that this is bullshit, this is, we can't, we can't run trucks here. Is there an Iranian project that is different or, or measurably, uh, you know, territorially oriented or, or, you know, has actually specific elements to it that's different than whatever the Iranian project was before the U.S. invaded Iraq and toppled the functional state that was holding together a certain patch of key territory that was uh, preventing some of these things from happening? Absolutely. The, the strategic balance of the region changed in 2003. And of course, if we're looking at why things are the way they are today, it's much more about 2003, in my view, than anything else. Uh, and what has happened is that conflict has allowed Iran to, uh, for the most part, intervene indirectly through proxy forces. Uh, and that is different. Uh, it is more along the lines of a Hezbollah model where they have allies on the ground, uh, as opposed to relations with the central government. Uh, And of course, as we've seen in the Syria conflict, as it has progressed, there are Iranians on the ground. And so that is, I think, something we should take note of, particularly because it seems to be 
for obvious reasons, something of a red line for the Israelis. And so, you know, set aside the land bridge, militia forces and Iranian-backed forces close to the Israeli border, I think that is an issue. And I think that's distinct from the notion of the land bridge as the kind of geographic link. So, so let's talk about this, uh, the Hezbollah model. Uh, Seema, you, you did some research recently that was, I think, very interesting about what, uh, what Hezbollah is doing in this uh, border area between Lebanon and Syria in terms of fighting militants and in terms of uh, uh, stepping into some roles usually reserved for states in terms of uh, uh, resettling refugees. What, uh, what, is, what is Hezbollah doing uh, up, up there in the borderlands and, and how, has, how has their status evolved in that, in that area uh, after five years of, or six years of war in Syria? I mean, I think Hezbollah is still a little bit conflicted about how it wants to portray its growing regional role. Um, it's definitely something they're not afraid to admit that is a lot more important to them than it was before. But the problem with that is, to the media, they're still not sure as to how much they want to show that they've already fit, they've already not replaced, but they've already taken, um, taken governance, uh, at least part of the governance of a lot of the border areas um, on the Syrian side. Sorry, didn't they actually take charge of resettling a group of Syrian refugees yes. into the Syrian Kalamun yes, last they, month? Yes, they did. I mean, publicly, they, they make sure that they always say we're not replacing the Syrian regime, but what they do, but from their actions, it seems like um, they are doing that somehow, at least in the border areas where, for example, in Arsil, what they did was that they resettled without, and that was negotiated not with the, with the regime, but with the Lebanese military to resettle around 50 families. And they, these families were handpicked uh, between, by Hezbollah and between like sort of notables that are close to Hezbollah and close to certain Syrian figures in that town, which is called Asir al-Wadid. And no one had known that that was about to happen until it did, and until Hezbollah's war media center um, released a report about it. Um, so, I mean, this, this just raises the question as to how far is Hezbollah really involved into the Syrian, involved in governing these Syrian villages, or how far is it taking control over these negotiation settlements? But not that Hezbollah is still very adamant on saying, yes, we are doing that. They're just doing it um, stage by stage. They're just uh, they're being very careful about what that shows. Well, so, so when, when we pull back and look at this, like the Shia Crescent, the road from Tehran to the sea narrative, uh, I think, okay, what Michael said a few minutes ago is true, that the balance of power in this part, in the Levant, has shifted decisively in Iran's favor from, let's say, uh, the 90s when it was decisively in the sort of American-Sunni alliance's favor. But when you look up close and you start to unpack the, the Shia crescent, uh, so-called, you find relationships like this. And if, if you look at what is Hezbollah's partnership with the Syrian regime it is, and with the Iranian government? It is absolutely not one of direct proxy control. It is a very variegated uh, and at times competing uh, set of interests. And so um, it's one of those things that, that always amuses me when 
you know, we talk about our side, whoever we are, and we are very sensitive to the great divisions that exist between us and our allies and how difficult it is to get your clients and friends to do what you want. But then when we talk about the other side, whoever they might be, we seem to think that they're like Switzerland and they're going to be this incredible uh, paragon of efficiency. And, and I think we know it doesn't work out that way. Uh, and I'm sure, for example, if we, if we could hear the real thoughts of the Syrian government, I'm sure there were people in Damascus who were really pissed off when Hezbollah put out on its own media outlets footage of Hezbollah resettling Syrians in liberated Syria without any Syrian military or government presence uh, being part of the resettlement. But at the end of the day, they are reliant on those outside forces. And um, in terms of outward-facing Reality, I'm not sure that any of that is material. I think it might become more so when the war begins to de-escalate uh, and the Syrian government tries to rebalance and take control of its own country again. But as long as the war goes on and that reliance continues, uh, I, I'm not sure that those, those tensions are going to have an impact in terms of how they interact with the rest of the world and the region. I think it's one of those yeah, great I mean, questions. And what I've heard is that the, I mean, secondhand or through people who kind of interact regularly with the regime is that they, they recognize by this point that their association with Iran is actually a huge political liability, that in some ways it's, it's more toxic uh, to a Western audience than the regime's own kind of conduct and behavior. Uh, and so they realize that as they, you know, as they are pursuing normalization and reintegration into the international system, that this is a problem for them, but... Is it a problem they have no option. at all? Is it a problem internally? Uh, yeah, that's something that I've heard. I mean, yeah, I have an extremely limited understanding of, you know, the real circumstances and opinion inside the country. I have heard people say when I was in there in Damascus, and then uh, since then, you know, people who go in and out, that there is discomfort with the extent of... a uh, Discomfort among, inside the regime, among Syrians with the extent of Iranian influence and autonomy in these areas. It's part of the reason why some people were interested, some people were excited about the Russian intervention, because Russia stepped in and then weren't obviously, weren't obviously trying to remake Syrian, the Syrian state and Syrian society. Uh, Russia is not a cultural threat, and it's not kind of building this para-state apparatus the same way that uh, that Iran seems to be. Uh, and so, you know, people, that was a relief for some people. And I think one point that I, that is important is if we go up a level and think about the way that Iranian power has changed over time, uh, it's critical to realize that now Iran has collapsed its soft power in the Arab world, uh, in the Sunni Arab world, uh, it's lost most of its Sunni Arab allies, and the way that it exercises power in the region is now through hard power, and that's costly. It might not be as costly for the Iranians working through proxies as it might be for the Saudis working in Yemen directly, but it imposes limits on what the Iranians can do in a way that didn't exist prior. Is that true, uh, Seema, for Hezbollah inside Lebanon, that hard power has now eclipsed soft power as their primary vector of influence? I mean, at least in Lebanon, no, they're still, definitely, they're still sticking to their model of soft power because, I mean, it just, their position in Lebanon now is a little bit flaky. Um, 
because what they're trying to do continuously is to show support for the army and to continuously show support for the state. And I think that sort of diverts the attention away from what they're doing in Syria. So if they were to put things, whatever is happening on Lebanese grounds at the border with Syria, if they were to put things in the hands of the Lebanese state and they continuously reiterate, we're going to evacuate from the Lebanese lands, and that's what they did a couple of months ago, and we're going to give the army back control from, for the outskirts of Arsel, which is a border town, um, when they don't, when obviously they're still trying to cleanse the outskirts of Arsel and they just redeploy to other places. And that's sort of just to divert the attention of what is happening, for example, in Qusayr. Um, what is Hezbollah's role there? Why is it that there is no information going in and out from that village? What is happening in the Kalamun villages? Um, who is in control of these governance structures? Uh, who is doing the resettlement? Who is negotiating with opposition groups? Um, and I think the more that they um, rest the concerns, the more that they put to rest the concerns of politicians, especially those from like the 14th bloc or from the future movement about what is going on in, in, on Hezbollah's role in Lebanon, the more that they wouldn't ask a lot of questions about what's going on on the Syrian part. And that's probably a good indicator of what the future might look like in a, uh, in a Syria back in fully in regime hands or in a sort of Shia uh, constellation from Tehran to the sea. It, it won't look like uh, a Tehran-controlled Switzerland. It'll look kind of like Lebanon does, where there's, where there's not civil war, but where there is a lot of difficult negotiations between different empowered uh, power centers. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Century Foundation's Foreign Policy Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Uh, Sam Heller. Simo Vagdar. Arun Lund. And I'm Michael Hanna. Until next time. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about Century's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.